0: Welcome to the Natacast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known
1: as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear
0: Bomb. And welcome to the 200th, yes, that's right, 200th episode of the Natacast, titled No Exit, an analysis of a storm of swords, Catelyn 7 and Arya 11, in which Gandalf falls into the abyss. Wait, no, I mean, I mean, Luke finds out Darth Vader's his father. I'm sorry, wrong story. Very, very silly. I mean, in which Michael Corleone wipes out his enemies. There we go. That's the one.
1: Look at how they massacred my boy.
0: All of our boys. So many boys. And a couple of girls in there, too. Ugh. We're here with our 200th episode, and I swear it just honestly worked out. Maybe I, you know. Had a, my, my uh, hand on the tiller for a couple episodes. There were two parters, but it really mostly just worked out that our 200th episode lands on the the biggest and best moment in a Song of Ice and Fire, relatively speaking, the Red Wedding. It's just uh, couldn't have asked for a better big round number anniversary episode. I'm just I'm so happy to be with with you on the uh, for this one
1: absolutely it's perfect i'm so happy to do this with you and it ends up being perfect that you broke up so many davos chapters into two parts because then you can give davos and stannis all the credit for this for this to be i plan to
0: as usual (laughs) My, my miserable obsession finally pays off i knew it would i knew it would Alright, our spoiler warning as always. Prepare to be spoiled for all five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. So usually we do our, a question from one of our, our sworn sword and higher level patrons uh, at the start of the episode, and you can go ahead and check that out at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, if you haven't already. But for this one, I think as a I don't know, as a palate cleanser, as an introduction, as a way to start a campfire story. I wanted to talk about everyone's first time, our first time with the Red Wedding. This is, I think, more than more than anything else in the story, is the one that everyone remembers their first time reading this. So, what was your what was your, what was your first Red Wedding menu?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely like the JFK assassination of the Aswath fandom. <laughs> exactly, in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was summer 2011. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had read a Game of Thrones prior to season one of Game of Thrones, um, and then I watched season one, and then consumed all the books in the weeks thereafter. Um, all I really knew about the Red Wedding is my coworker Laura, who was reading it at the same time as me, told me that her neighbor told her that Walder Frey was up to no good. So that's kind of all the warning I had. Um, and I actually mm-hmm. got this before um, Rob shows up in the Twins in A Game of Thrones. So um, no idea if he was going to circle back or when we were going to circle back to him. Anyways, summer 2011, it was a Friday, this I remember. I was sitting on my couch in my apartment, the same one I'm still in today, legs kicked up and reading as I was off for a summer Friday, as was the way we did things. I basically read the stretch of material we've talked about the last couple of weeks, so I wasn't just starting with Catelyn 7. Um, and, but I did get to those fateful chapters, and it started out harmlessly enough in that the only harm being done was to everyone's eardrums. Uh, <laughs> there is drinking and feasting and wedding jitters. I'm going through Catelyn 7. Okay, this seems fine. This is okay. But then that edwin uh, Dacey moment happens, and I'm just like Catelyn Stark in that moment. I'm like, What? What was that? What what happened there? Um, And then it begins, or with sadness, then it ends. Um, As the chaos unfolded, I found myself kind of skipping back and reading backwards to make sure I was comprehending exactly what I was reading. They're all being murdered? Uh, I couldn't believe it. Um, I don't even think I registered Roose Bolton as the guy who finally killed Rob. I was like Catelyn at this point. I had like completely dissociated from time and space. <laughs> I was unstuck in time, as our friend Kurt would say. Um, and then, you know, you turn the page. Um, you're reading in kayfabe the first time. Everything's real to you and you just want to see what happens next. I'm not sitting here and talking about Georgia's imagery or anything. Um, and I turned the page and Uh, And here we are, Arya, oh, okay, maybe there's a shot here, you know, there's a fool's hope that we can get through this, you know, there was that chance with Ned at Baylor. she witnessed it but couldn't do anything about it, this is the perfect follow-up, this is her chance to come and save the day. Well, in a couple short pages, uh, George dashed those hopes, and the Arya chapter starts becoming as miserable as the Catelyn one, and I... I kinda hadn't really gotten George's style yet. Again, this is my first time through the book. So I like now looking back, he has a style with his uh death fakeouts. Um, so I would know, like, okay, this we didn't see them die, so we'll probably see them, you know, later on in the book. I didn't really have that with uh George um at this point. So I'm reading the Arya chapter, and the last line is the axe took her in the back of the head. And I'm like, well, fuck, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, I know um, we bag on some of these Aria chapters, but just in the moment, she's a character that's very easy to love, that we're rooting for, and I had been exposed to Maisie Williams, so she's just like the cutest little thing I ever did see. I just didn't know what to do. I'm also not the type to cheat and look at the table of contents and see if we get an Aria chapter, uh, you know, a little bit down the line. And anyways, my iPad didn't show chapters, so I couldn't even do that if I wanted to. I just sat there on my couch for... 10 minutes, maybe, just kind of thinking, um, not really doing anything. Uh, It was becoming Friday evening, and I was in my 20s, so I'm like, well... The You know, it's going to flow red tonight when I go out with my buddies, but uh, it's like that one meme uh, with the guy standing in the corner. It's like, no one knows that I'm sad about this. Uh, that was basically me all night. I was sitting in the corner thinking about the red wedding while we were all jamming out and listening to music and chugging wine or whatever it was we did. Um, but that was basically my fateful event with the story. Um, I still remember every part of that evening crystal clear. Um, it is just etched into my mind, and I think it will be etched into my mind so long as I keep the three brain cells I have so uh, what about you tell me about your time with it well I'm sorry it
0: ruined a party I guess that's the Red Wedding's job it just ruins every party after that uh yeah I was so I was a little younger I was reading these in high school uh right in like the lead-up to when A Feast for Crows came out and my first time through I was going like shamefully fast because especially in, in Storm so many things were happening in every other page and I was just rifling through it and I think it was maybe just kind of like burnt out emotionally when I finally got to the Red Wedding. So when I first read it, it just blew me away just purely in terms of how confident it was to just not just kill off Rob, but to kill off this entire storyline that we've been following for a few books now. That the Stark army and their movements around the map and the different secondary characters involved and Catelyn intersecting with some or all of them as she goes. And now it's just, you know, not just diverted, not just something strange happened, but gone as if it was never there, scorched earth. And I was just so impressed by that because I'd read, I think, a lot of lesser fantasy novels, still great ones, but that were just, were so, just would not kill their darlings and were just so clingy to every plot point and storyline that developed and, and you know, not even just that, you know, you have to kill off characters to prove you're serious or anything, you know, anything silly like that, but just the the courage it takes to say, yeah, that's gone and maybe I'm going to want to wish I had come back to it later, but too bad. It's gone. And that just, that took my breath away. And it wasn't even really until I got to the next Arya chapter, you know, months later, it was 12 chapters down the line that I really started to feel it because that chapter is just the hangover. Just Arya feeling like she'll never be happy again. And that's when kind of the the ache and the melancholy of the Red Wedding really sank in. And then when I came back on reread, that stood out to me. And it is, it is – it makes you feel so many different things at once and I think something you could say about The Red Wedding is that it, if it was handled less well, it could feel overstuffed or too much of a good thing. Like you're, you're being expected to process too much information at once but it – when you're reading it, I just think of that little moment you know, when Catlin realizes why all of the good phrase aren't there and like you could have the chapter without that and it would still be really effective. But just having a little thing like that just shows you how every everything is in its right place. And even though what's happening is chaotic, the writing itself is 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 so precise. So that's what that's what I first responded to, and then later I realized, oh, my heart's breaking. <laughs> later, later I caught up, and of course that was only the first time we've been back. You know, probably several hundred times each to the Red Wedding, the most uh, frequently read uh, part of the story.
1: Yeah, so one of my favorite reread stories, um, which doesn't look great for me, but uh, I was rereading <laughs> okay. it. Uh, this was probably 2018, 2018. I was rereading it before uh, Game of Thrones season eight, figured it was a good reread time. And I got to that chapter. And I was about halfway through Catlin 7, and Gendry started getting real annoying. Um, so I decided uh, to get up and chase him around a little bit. And in doing so, I tripped over my chase and hit my head on the corner of the coffee table and started bleeding from my head while I reading The this. Red Wedding because <laughs> of Cat. Uh, so, uh, it just... How literal could it be? i just like, okay, at this point, like, I'm destined to be doomed by this chapter in many ways, so hopefully nothing bad befalls me during this recording. If I don't make it out alive, um, don't bring back my body as a corpse, is all I ask of you.
0: Suddenly the screen starts glitching and you just vanish, and I'm like, uh-oh, I start hearing voices. <laughs> it's haunted, it's cursed. It's, a my new POV chapter after all. <laughs> Alright, can't put it off any longer. Oh,
1: let's get to it.
0: We're here with A Storm of Swords, Catalan 7, and Arya 11, so let's jump into the synopsis. The drums were pounding, 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 and her head with them. Drums? Like drums in the deep? Who knew the phrase had a balrog? I did figure like at least half of them were cave trolls, though. The drums are joined by pipes, flutes, fiddles, and horns, each sounding worse than the last. Catalan's not even sure what song they're supposed to be playing. Alessand or the Bear and the Maiden Fair, both at once maybe. As long as Catelyn's focusing on the terrible music, she won't have to think about how bad everyone smells, crammed and close together in this hot room. Catelyn is sitting in between Ryman Frey, who's got Thanksgiving-level wine sweats, and Roose Bolton, who smells sweeter but somehow just as foul. Tolkien once again suing for plagiarism here. Roose is barely eating, and Catelyn can't blame him because the food is somehow worse than the music. Leek soup, green bean salad. Pike poached in almond milk, cold mashed turnips, and best slash worst of all, jellied calf's brains. But at least the groom isn't complaining. He's too focused on his new bride. You would never guess Edmure complained of Rosalind all the way from River Run to the twins. Husband and wife ate from a single plate, drank from a single cup, and exchanged chase kisses between sips. Most of the dishes Edmure waved away. She could not blame him for that. She remembered little of the food served at her own wedding feast. Did I even taste it? Or spend the whole time gazing at Ned's face, wondering who he was. Poor Rosalind's smile had a fixed quality to it, as if someone had sewn it onto her face. Well, she is a maid wedded, but the betting's yet to come. No doubt she's as terrified as I was. Yeah, as terrified, let's go with that. Come on, Edmure's dick isn't that scary, just ask Thomas Evans. At least Rob is doing his duty. He's managing to keep the food down, and he's dancing with every free daughter in sight. Catelyn tries to compliment the girls to Ryman, but Ryman's got his own dance going with his wine cup. That's my favorite of Song of Ice and Fire book, a dance with daiquiris. Booze is basically the only part of the wedding Walder Frey spent money on, which, yeah, I gotta hand it to him. Priorities in place. The ale, wine, and mead were flowing as fast as the river outside. The great John was already roaring drunk. Lord Walder's son Merritt was matching him cup for cup, but Sir Waylon Frey had passed out trying to keep up with the two of them. Catelyn would sooner Lord Umber had seen fit to stay sober, but telling the Great John not to drink was like telling him not to breathe for a few hours. Well, at least the Great John will get to keep breathing. That's more than you can say for most of the guests. The only ones not drinking are Rob's guards. Small John Umber, Robin Flint, Patrick Malister, and Daisy Mormont. But Catelyn is mostly reassured for their safety by the sight of the swords hanging up on the walls. And hey, not everyone is having a miserable time. Let's get to someone enjoying themselves. Everyone thought my lord would choose fair Walda, Lady Walda Bolton told Sir Wendell, shouting to be heard above the music. Fat Walda was a round pink butterball of a girl with watery blue eyes, limp yellow hair, and a huge bosom, yet her voice was a fluttering squeak. It was hard to picture her in the dreadfort in her pink lace and cape of Air. My lord grandfather offered Ruth his bride's weight in silver as a dowry, so my lord of Bolton picked me. The girl's chins jiggled when she laughed. I weigh six stone more than fair Walda, but that was the first time I was glad of it. I'm Lady Bolton now, and my cousin's still a maid, and she'll be 19 soon, poor thing. God bless Walda. Let her have fun while she can, before she meets her stepson. As for her lord husband, Roos is not interested in the gossip or the food. Again, can't blame him there. Roos did lead a wedding toast, but only to remind their generous host that Ramsay has two fray grandsons as hostages. Glad someone's getting in the wedding spirit. Catelyn thinks that this must be the worst wedding ever, until she remembers Sansa's wedding to Tyrion. Ah, oh, don't worry, Catelyn, you will take back the record before long. The heat and smoke and noise were making her sick. The musicians in the gallery might be numerous and loud, but they were not especially gifted. Catelyn took another swallow of wine and allowed a page to refill her cup. A few more hours and the worst will be over. By this hour tomorrow, Rob will be off to another battle, this time with the Ironmen and Moat Galen. Strange how that prospect seemed almost a relief. He will win his battle. He wins all his battles, and the Ironborn are without a king. Besides, Ned taught him well. Rob does win all his battles, because despite what Arya says outside in the second here, this does not count as a battle. More of a massacre, technically. Eh, I'll give Arya a pass. Her life is a never ending nightmare. Catalan watches some dogs fighting over table scraps, hint hint, wishing that they had Grey Wind with them. But Walder refused to let the direwolf in after what happened outside. What if Grey Wind threatened the wedding guests? Can't let that happen, that's Walder's job. Meanwhile, the Great John is winning drinking contests left and right, and decides to start singing The Bear and the Maiden Fair. He's actually a pretty good singer, if only the musicians weren't playing a completely different song. Roos slips away at this point. Even if he didn't have to armor up for the massacre, he'd probably just want to get away from the noise. Catelyn thinks that some other guests are probably sneaking out to find a better time elsewhere. The bastard Freys have their own party going in the other castle, and all the soldiers are getting drunk down at the tents. Rob sat down in Bolton's vacant place. "'A few more hours and this farce is done, mother,' he said in a low voice, as the great John sang of the maid with the honey in her hair. "'Black Walder's been mild as a lamb for once, and Uncle Edmure seems well content in his bride.' He leaned across her. "'Sir Ryman?' Sir Ryman Frey blinked and said, Sire, yes? I'd hope to ask Olivar to squire for me when we march north, said Rob, but I do not see him here. Would he be at the other feast? Olivar? Sir Ryman shook his head. No, not Olivar. G- gone. Gone from the castles. Duty. I see. Rob's tone suggested otherwise. I'll keep going, Rob. You got him on the ropes. Ah, too little, too late. Rob asks Catalin for a dance, but she's got the mother-of-all headaches going, so she passes him off to Random Frey Daughter 375. The musicians are managing to get even worse now that they're competing for volume with the great John. Catalin remembers that at least one of the Freys actually knows how to sing. Ryman confirms that it's his cousin Alessander, but he's missing too. Someone really ought to look into these missing Freys. I'm starting to get worried for them. Despite the music, the smell, the food, etc., some of the guests are still managing to have a good time. Rob is dancing with Daisy Mormont now, who cleans up nicer than Catelyn would have expected. The other Mormont girls went with their mother Mage on her secret mission in the neck, but Daisy stayed to guard Rob out of loyalty, just like Oliver Frey had wanted to stick with Rob even after he broke his marriage pact. Poor Daisy. I wish she'd been a little less loyal. She might still be alive like her sisters. Finally, Walder puts the music out of everyone's misery and calls for the betting. A score or more of Walder Frey's sons and grandsons began to bang their cups again, shouting, To bed, to bed, to bed with them. Rosalind had gone white. Catalin wondered whether it was the prospect of losing her maidenhead that frightened the girl, or the betting itself. With so many siblings, she was not like to be a stranger to the custom, but it was different when you were the one being bedded. On Catalin's own wedding night, Jory Cassell had torn her gown in his haste to get her out of it, and drunken Desmond Grell kept apologizing for every body joke, only to make another. When Lord Dustin had beheld her naked, he told Ned that her breasts were enough to make him wish he'd never been weaned. Poor man, she thought. He'd ridden south with Ned, never to return. Catelyn wondered how many of the men here tonight would be dead before the year was done. Too many, I fear. Before the year was done? Try before the night is done. The guests throw innuendo back and forth, the fray women giving as much as they get, and then some. They start stripping Edmure while the men lift up Rosalind, Or at least they try, until the Great John barges in and tosses Rosalind over his shoulder like the last bag of grocery store ice on the 4th of July. Catalin sees that the bride is still crying, although she thinks that might be on account of how wasted the Great John is. When a guy that big drops you, you got a long way to fall. Catalin knows that her duty is to help get her little brother naked, but strangely she isn't into that, although she thinks, probably correctly, that Edmure wouldn't be into it either. At least the Frey girls are having fun with it. Catelyn is more surprised to see that Rob has stayed behind, too. But at least a bunch of Frey men have as well, so it's not too rude. Whew, close call. Don't want to be rude. The only woman left behind besides Catelyn herself is Daisy Mormont, who asks Edwin Frey to dance. He refuses, very, very forcefully. Suspiciously so, even. Catelyn senses that the vibes have just turned bad, well, worse, and goes after Edwin. The players in the gallery had finally gotten both king and queen down to their name-day suits. With scarcely a moment's respite, they began to play a very different sort of song. No one sang the words, but Catalin knew the reins of Castamere when she heard it. Edwin was hurrying toward a door. She hurried faster, driven by the music. Six quick strides and she caught him. And who are you, the proud lord said, that I must bow so low? She grabbed Edwin by the arm to turn him and went cold all over when she felt the iron rings beneath his silken sleeve. Catelyn slapped him so hard she broke his lip. Olivar, she thought, and Perwin, Alessander, all absent. And Rosalind wept. With that, all hell breaks loose. Rob is shot in the shoulder when he tries to block Edwin's path, and Catelyn sees that half the musicians are now wielding crossbows. Catelyn runs to help Rob, but is herself shot in the back. Small John Umber throws a table down on top of Rob to protect him, but he is quickly brought low by a crossbow bolt, as Robin Flint is butchered by a pack of Freys with daggers. Lucas Blackwood is killed by Hostine Frey, and Wendell Manderley is shot through the mouth. Daisy Mormont runs for the door, but then Ryman Frey enters in full armor. Mercy, Catalan cried, but horns and drums and the clash of steel smothered her plea. Sir Ryman buried the head of his axe in Daisy's stomach. By then, men were pouring in the other doors as well, mailed men in shaggy fur cloaks with steel in their hands. Northmen. She took them for rescue for half a heartbeat, till one of them struck the small john's head off with two huge blows of his axe. Hope blew out like a candle in a storm. In the midst of slaughter, the Lord of the Crossing sat on his carved oaken throne, watching greedily. There is no curse strong enough for this dude. Sorry, Seven. Sorry, Relore, You just don't have it. Catelyn sees a dagger on the floor and crawls toward it, telling herself that she can at least kill their treacherous host. But then Rob emerges from under the table, a pincushion of arrows. Walder stops the music, all except the Balrog's drum going boom-doom, and Catelyn can hear the battle sounds from outside. And grey wind howling. Too little, and too late. (laughs) Heh, Lord Walder cackled at Rob. The king in the north arises. Seems we killed some of your men, your grace. Oh, but I'll make you an apology. That will mend them all again. (laughs) Man, how late do you think he was up working on that line? Catelyn grabs Egon Jingle Bell and holds the knife to his throat. She begs Walder to let Rob go. He's her first son. True. And her last. False. She promises that they'll take no vengeance, but sadly, Walder is not dumb enough to buy that. Catelyn next offers herself and Edmure as hostages in Rob's place, telling Rob to walk away for Jane's sake. Lord Walder snorted, and why would I let him do that? She pressed the blade deeper into Jingle Bell's throat. The lackwit rolled his eyes at her in mute appeal. A foul stench assailed her nose, but she paid it no more mind than she did the sullen, ceaseless pounding of that drum—boom, dum, boom, dum, boom, dum. Sir Ryman and Black Walder were circling round her back, but Catalin did not care. They could do as they wished with her—imprison her, rape her, kill her—it made no matter. She had lived too long, and Ned was waiting. It was Rob she feared for. "'On my honor as a Tully,' she told Lord Walder. "'On my honor as a Stark, I will trade your boy's life for Rob's, A son for a son.' Her hand shook so badly she was ringing Jingle Bell's head. Boom, the drum sounded. Boom-dum, boom-dum. The old man's lips went in and out. The knife trembled in Catalan's hand, slippery with sweat. A son for a son, <laughs> he repeated. But that's a grandson, and he never was much use. A man in dark armor and a pale pink cloak spotted with blood stepped up to Rob. Jamie Lannister sends his regards. He thrust his longsword through her son's heart and twisted. Rob had broken his word, but Catelyn kept hers. She tugged hard on Aegon's hair and sawed at his neck until the blade grated on bone. Blood ran hot over her fingers. His little bells were ringing, 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 and the drum went boom, doom, boom. Finally, someone took the knife away from her. The tears burned like vinegar as they ran down her cheeks. Ten fierce ravens were raking her face with sharp talons and tearing off strips of flesh, leaving deep furrows that ran red with blood. She could taste it on her lips. It hurts so much, she thought. Our children, Ned, all our sweet babes. Rickon, Bran, Arya, Sansa, Rob, Rob, please, Ned, please, make it stop, make it stop hurting. The white tears and the red ones ran together until her face was torn and tattered, the face that Ned had loved. Catelyn Stark raised her hands and watched the blood run down her long fingers, over her wrists beneath the sleeves of her gown. Slow red worms crawled along her arms and under her clothes. It tickles. That made her laugh until she screamed. Mad, someone said. She's lost her wits. And someone else said, make an end. And a hand grabbed her scalp just as she'd done with Jingle Bell. And she thought, no, don't. Don't cut my hair. Ned loves my hair. Then the steel was at her throat, and its bite was red and cold. Hoo boy. Honestly wish I could stop there, but nope. On to Aria 11. At least this one's short. Arya and Sandor have ridden past the feast tents and have almost arrived at the castle gatehouse. The gate isn't closed like the Bolton sergeant said it would be, and then suddenly Sandor is reining up and knocking Arya down into the mud. She, quite reasonably, yells her little head off at him until she realizes why he did it. Riders are streaming out of the castle gate, well-armed and armored. Somehow in the middle of that noise and the music and the river, Arya hears a wolf howling. Ah, but maybe it's not with her ears. Listen with your heart, Sirio Pharrell said. Oh, he didn't? Well, he should have. Then Arya hears another loud sound behind her. She turns to see that the feast tents are collapsing, and Frey archers are lighting them up with fire arrows. Well, at least the musicians in the different towers have gotten their act together. They're all playing The Reigns of Castamere. Several of the horsemen spot them and charge on over. Eh, probably just to ask for a donation to the Frey Bastard Fund. A lot of those hanging around. Sandor grabs his sword and straddles Stranger, who doesn't even need an order to charge the Freys. Aw, who's a good warhorse? You are. Yes, you are. Arya, meanwhile, picks up a rock, but realizes she doesn't know who to throw it at, Sandor or the Freys. Little advice, kid, get more rocks. As many rocks as you have enemies, assuming there are that many rocks in Westeros. Arya sees Sandor struggling against the odds and reminds herself about Micah, the butcher's boy who was himself butchered by the hound. But then she's interrupted by one of the horsemen charging at her instead. She doesn't understand why the Freys would be doing this, aren't they her brother's friends? Kings have no friends, kid, only subjects and enemies, and the Freys have now been both for Rob. Arya throws her rock at the knight, but it barely slows him down. She starts racing around the wagon, hoping to make him dizzy, I guess, but thankfully Sandor shows back up and bisects the dude's head with an axe he took off one of the other riders. Gnarly. Get my helm, Clegane growled at her. It was stuffed at the bottom of a sack of dried apples, in the back of the wane behind the the pickled pig's feet. Arya upended the sack and tossed it to him. He snatched it one-handed from the air and lowered it over his head, and where the man had sat, only a steel dog remained, snarling at the fires. "'My brother!' "'Dead!' he shouted back at her. "'Do you think they'd slaughter his men and leave him alive?' "'I mean, maybe. Feels like it's more the other way around. They slaughtered Rob, so now they can't leave his men alive.' (laughs) But Sandor is right about one thing. The Freys are indeed, killing all of Robb's men. Arya sees it unfold below her, the tents burning from oil catapulted down from the castles, as well as fire arrows now. The music has given way to one lonely drumbeat. Sandor wants to leave, now if not sooner, but Arya wants to sneak into the open castle gate and look for Rob, or at least Catelyn. Sandor, not unreasonably, thinks that sounds like a suicide mission. Arya spun away from him and darted for the gate. The portcullis was coming down, but slowly. I have to run faster. The mud slowed her, though, and then the water. Run fast as a wolf. The drawbridge had begun to lift, the water running off it in a sheet, the mud falling in heavy clots. Faster. She heard loud splashing and looked back to see stranger pounding after her, sending up gouts of water with every stride. She saw the long axe too, still wet with blood and brains. And Arya ran. Not for her brother now, not even for her mother, but for herself. She ran faster than she had ever run before, her head down and her feet churning up the river. She ran from him as Micah must have run. His axe took her in the back of the head. And that, at last, is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 7, and Arya 11. We'll take a five-hour cry break, and then... What do you think of it, Manu?
1: all right let's get the important stuff out of the way first jamie lannister innocent (laughs) gavel gavel case is settled that said uh, what do you want me to say it's the red freaking wedding man for us and all of you out there it's ground zeros for a song of ice and fire fandom it is the thing And really, this is what we want from art, right? Why we read books and watch TV and movies, to become so deeply invested in character and story, and to have it pay off in a deluge of emotion, catharsis, and of course, pain. It's pain all the way down, pain and suffering, and in many, many ways, life has never been the same ever since. There's a reason it's cherished in its own way by the fandom, there's a reason it broke the internet when Game of Thrones got to it. There's a reason it made sense to make this our 200th episode. It is just simply that big. Like I said
0: last time, I think the highest compliment I can pay the Red Wedding is that it still works. And it would make sense if it didn't, right? This is such an overexposed moment in the story, especially after the show. I think about all the Red Wedding reaction videos, the the think pieces, the Reddit essays and Tumblr gift sets, all the stories everyone tells about how they had to stop and throw the book across the room at this point. We just told a couple of those stories ourselves. Mm -hmm. You'd think with all that baggage, the event itself might no longer live up to the hype. But it does. It really does. Every time I read it. Because the bones of this thing are so solid. The seed is strong. Mm -hmm. The Red Wedding is a marvel of literary craftsmanship an object lesson in how to write something that seems to leap out of the page, grab you by the throat, and never let go. It's a shock to the system that comes out of nowhere to the first-time reader, but as we've been covering, it's also the single most heavily foreshadowed event in the story. Somehow it's both at once. Even on reread, though, when I can see all the setup, it still locks me into that same sickening dread, like bile rising in the back of my throat. It makes me think of a quote from Faulkner. The aim of every artist is to arrest motion, which is life, by artificial means, and hold it fixed, so that a hundred years later, when a stranger looks at it, it moves again. And that's what George did here. All I have to do is read those opening words about the pounding of the drum, or see a single screenshot from this scene on the show, and there it is. It moves again. This is the defining moment of A Song of Ice and Fire— and even if George never actually finishes this story, the Red Wedding will endear forever. It's immortal.
1: So, I want to take a second to discuss A Song of Ice and Fire structurally, just so we can place the Red Wedding into a broader narrative context. I think of Aswath in terms of three acts. The first three books are Act 1, Feast Dance is Act 2, and, assuming George sticks to his plan, Winds of Spring is the final act. Not everyone has to conceive it this way, but it makes the most sense to me, especially using the epilogues in Storm and Dance to act as act breaks. From there then, Act 1 of A Song of Ice and Fire itself can be broken down into three acts. The first act is A Game of Thrones, the second A Clash of Kings, and the final A Storm of Swords. And of course, A Storm of Swords itself breaks down into three acts. We've been tracking this second act that starts with the wedding between Tyrion and Sansa till it ends here at the Twins. In popular parlance, we use the term climax pretty loosely. Often, we use it to mean the resolution of the core conflict, when Luke Skywalker defeats Darth Vader. But in a traditional plot structure sense, the climax, or peak, is called the turning point, usually at the end of the second act, Vader revealing fatherhood to Luke, for example. What happens after, the Jedi returning, is then deemed the falling action, and any postscript is the denouement, say the Ewoks dancing. All of that is to get at we have nested act structures working on top of each other and they all intersect in these two chapters. I've been calling the red wedding a hinge of the narrative for the last couple episodes and that is in part because of how intrinsically placed the red wedding is into the overall plot structure. It's serving different needs to each of the act structures at work. The red wedding is a climax of a song of ice and fire act 1 of the first 3 books. Or you could even say the Red Wedding and Purple Wedding are that climax in concert, that's fine too. I'm using it here to mean resolution. It essentially ends the conflict of the War of the Five Kings, Joffrey and Tywin's upcoming deaths notwithstanding. But relative to A Storm of Swords itself, this moment functions more as the turning point definition, as we have the entire third act of A Storm of Swords to follow— the meaningful climaxes of A Storm of Swords itself are Stannis up at the Wall and Tywin on the Shitter, which we'll worry about later on in our podcast. But here, the narrative shifts dramatically. The Westeros story, which is heavily focused on the Riverland so far, will now shift to two new centers of political gravity at the Wall and King's Landing— and in a way, those two poles represent the dilemma for the third major theater in the story, that is Daenerys out in the east, as saving the realm from the threat in the north and winning the throne in the south will be the quandary she sails west towards. Of course, we still have 30 chapters left in this book, and I consider what comes after these chapters to be the denouement of A Song of Ice and Fire Act 1, even if it is A Storm of Swords Act 3. Just in this book itself, the mix of chapters and ascendancy gets a little shake-up. To no one's surprise, the first two thirds have been focused on the Riverlands, building to this event, primarily Jamie and the two point of views we're talking about today, Catlin and Arya. Other characters have had their mo- moments early on. I'd say Davos and Danny both had their high points already for Storm, the former becoming Hand and the latter sacking Gastapur. The focus going forward will be on Jon, Tyrion, Sansa, and key non-point of view characters like Stannis, Mance Rayder, and Tywin Lannister. This analysis may all seem a bit mechanical, maybe even foolish considering we don't definitively have the final two books to concretely lay out an act structure, but we are going to talk a lot today about how awesome this moment is from a prose, thematic, narrative, and and perhaps most of all, emotional sense. But I think how George has structured the saga itself is worthy of note, a feat in its own right. It's understanding the moments that make the story writ small and writ large, and how those reinforce each other to make something greater than the sum of its parts.
0: Exactly. I love that. It it is greater than the sum of its parts because you're looking at not just the emotional quality of a chapter like this on its own, but how the structure enhances that emotion and kind of acts as as a delivery vessel for it. The artistry is in how they're woven together, all reinforcing each other. Ideally, your form matches your content. There's that great Roger Ebert quote that what's important is not what a movie is about, but how it's about it. So while the Red Wedding works like Gangbusters as a standalone set piece, it also draws a lot of its power from that context. Like you said, we've been spending so much time in the Riverlands lately. It's the center of the war and the backdrop for so many crisscrossing character arcs. And then, after the Red Wedding? Poof. It's gone. Like, this was such a devastating event, it broke the story apart. Catalan's POV and the Stark-Tully faction that POV showed to us is removed from the board. Jamie moves on to King's Landing, at least temporarily, and George delays the next Arya chapter for a long time, in part to build up the suspense of the fake-out death we'll be talking about here, but also to make us feel the absence of the Riverlands, like the missing chapters are standing in for missing people. Again, the form matches the content. From here, we shift into a series of chapters in which other people deal with the fallout from the Red Wedding, incorporating it into their own personal and political context. Tyrion gets the news from Tywin, and immediately wants to know if Cersei found out before he did. Because that's what's important. Everything is just fuel for inter-Lannister conflict. Although he also has to reckon with how to break it to Sansa. Then we see Team Stannis find out on Dragonstone. And for them, the Red Wedding is mostly about how it plays into Melisandre's leech burning ceremony, and the potential consequences of that for young Edric Storm. Bran dreams about the Red Wedding. Seemingly, as it happens but it's so terrible that he can't put it into words, can't even think directly about it the next morning. We've talked in the build-up to the Red Wedding about how prophets start seeing visions of it, the horror of it reverberating on a cosmic scale. Same goes for the aftermath. It bleeds into and infects the rest of the story. We're still seeing the ramifications play out well into Feast Dance. This is the reason Tywin's corpse stinks. This is the reason the Brotherhood turns partisan. And this is the reason Arya tries to be no one after this. It's not just the most shocking and memorable moment in the story, it's also just one of the most important ones, and the structural changes reflect the emotional
1: impact. Oh, I love that point about how all the follow-up chapters are all these people making it about themselves, (laughs) Um, and that actually feeds exactly into form meeting function with us remembering our time reading The Red Wedding, you know. We're the main character. (laughs) We make the reading of The Red Wedding, you know, our own story, and that's what all these other characters do as well. That's great, Mm mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of stories, there's a guy who wrote some other stories besides George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, his name was William Shakespeare. Maybe you've heard of him.
0: I think so. I'm not <laughs> familiar with this IP.
1: Uh, put in, <laughs> putting aside his histories, his stories generally break down into two categories. There are his comedies, Much Ado About Nothing or Twelfth Night, and his tragedies like Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, which is the original R plus L equals J. Romeo plus love equals Juliet.
0: Of course, of course.
1: Generally speaking, Shakespeare's tragedies will end in death and or betrayals, while the comedies tend to end in weddings and or reunions. The Red Wedding is of course a tragedy. Our tragic hero Rob Stark falls due to his tragic flaw of being too honorable, leading to the tragic mistake of marrying Jane Westerling. With Rob also falls his mother Catelyn, a character the reader is incredibly intimate with at this point, and also with Rob and Catelyn falls the entire political cause of the North. But there's also a betrayal component there, both in the forms of Walder Frey and Roose Bolton. But then we also get the comedy tropes. This whole thing takes place at a wedding, is a wedding, and with Arya lurking just outside the castle, we are on the verge of a cathartic reunion between her and her family. And as we talked about during Cat 6, and Emlet will talk about a little bit more today, these chapters are funny. (laughs) Walder Frey is a hoot. Mm -hmm. The entire function is a farce, down to the bad music and the bad food. George is mashing up these two distinct modes of storytelling, which is another part of why the Red Wedding really hits. This really shouldn't be happening here and now, at a ceremony meant to celebrate life and love. Like Emmett mentioned, it's Michael Corleone in The Godfather, presiding over his nephew's baptismal and being named Godfather while the Tattalias, Barzinis, and Mo Greens of the world are murdered in cold blood. And just to be clear, Tywin Lannister is Michael Corleone, not Walder Frey. Uh It's also got shades of Scorsese and Tarantino films that end in bloodbaths. Not to say George is inspired by them or they in turn, but rather there is a very cinematic quality to these proceedings. And it's absolutely jarring to see violence in this setting specifically. A few episodes back, Emmett used the phrase exceptional violence to describe the acts of Gregor Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch, compared to the more bog-standard violence of other men-at-arms. The Red Wedding then also stands as exceptional violence in event form, compared to the ordinary violence we'd see in war, battles, and trials by combat.
0: Yeah, The Godfather is, is definitely the ultimate the reference point for me here. Not only in terms of Tywin settling family business by wiping out his enemies, but also in terms of the artistry involved. I wouldn't be surprised if this was a explicit influence for George. The way The the Godfather cuts between the scenes of steadily mounting tension before unleashing the blood all at once, it's very similar to what George does here, bouncing back and forth between Arya and Catelyn. It's got the same slow, sickening pace the priest droning on in Latin in The Godfather has the same kind of hypnotic effect as the drumming in the Red Wedding. It just it just locks you in. Even the look of it is the same. The Godfather movies are usually talked about visually in terms of those those deep, velvety blacks captured by cinematographer Gordon Willis. They called him the Prince of Darkness after this. <laughs> and those are still striking, representing the the emptiness at the heart of Michael Sark. But what sticks with me even more is the the kind of burnished bronze, kind of red gold quality to so many of the scenes, especially the interior scenes in The Godfather. And I love how that style is weaponized when it comes to the the baptism slash massacre sequence. When those colors ramp up and it suddenly looks like hell, same idea here. And George is drawing from the, the Greeks as, as well as Shakespeare, the concept of Xenia, the code of hospitality that, that binds both hosts and guests, built around the idea that your guest could be a god in disguise. So you better treat every guest, uh, very well in case, you know, you piss off Athena or Artemis or one of those people's gonna wipe everybody out on the spot. And the Odyssey hinges on Xenia to a large degree, both in terms of how Odysseus is treated by the people he comes across and, of course, the suitors sitting around his house eating all his food. George builds on this with his emphasis on gifts to guests in A Dance with Dragons. That's how Wyman Manderly kills, cooks, and eats three phrase, Titus Andronicus style, to take it back to Shakespeare, while still not technically violating guest rate like they did because he gave them gifts first and then killed them. No literal gods show up in disguise at the Red Wedding, but George definitely leans into the idea that the gods curse the phrase for this. Like, this is partially, of course, just what people think and how they interpret it in-universe, but you get the sense that George really does believe that's what's happening here. Like, Stoneheart is one of the Greek Furies, the revenge deities that carry out the divine punishments for violating this kind of taboo. And less direct comparison, but the sense with the Red Wedding of this this master plan snapping into place just as it's too late to do anything about it, also reminds me of Ozymandias in, in Watchmen when he just says, I did it 35 minutes ago. And you just feel that shock set into place along with the characters. The Red Wedding, I think, is going for a similar vibe, if in a very, very different context.
1: Sandor should have told that to Arya at the end of Arya 11. Oh, Walder Frey probably did it 35 minutes ago. We <laughs> should was, get out of here.
0: <laughs> exactly. And he'd be right.
1: Of course, you know, my mind is jumping to Shakespeare and The Godfather because, you know, I was born this way. But (laughs) The Red Wedding has several historical analogs on top of the literary ones. The most famous of these is The Black Dinner, which occurred in Scotland in the year 1440. Three nobles, William Crichton, Lord Chancellor, Sir Alexander Livingston of Calendar, and the Earl of Avondale conspired to take down the Douglas clan, which had amassed considerable power while serving as regents to the boy king James II. The conspirators invited two sons of the Douglas clan to Edinburgh Castle, served them a black bull's head, a symbol of death, then arrested the boys and eventually beheaded them as traitors. I'm simplifying the story, but I think what's key is that this murder didn't really break the long-term power of the Douglas clan in Scotland. They still held power broadly when King James II came of age, and King James would also essentially do a second black dinner to parallel the possibility of a second red wedding. In 1452, James invited the 8th Earl of Douglas, also named William, to Stirling Castle under the promise of safe conduct, only to accuse him of conspiracy and then Julius Caesar him 26 times. That would eventually lead to a civil war and the Scottish Parliament declaring Douglas claims to land forfeit and the crown taking the lands back, a very clear parallel to what officially happens to the Starks here, whose land is officially reincorporated into the Seven Kingdoms and the wardenship handed over to the Boltons. The Roman Emperor Caracalla did his own red wedding in 216 AD as he pursued conquest in Iran. He pushed for a red wedding with the Parthian king's daughter as a means to make peace, and when the match was agreed upon, he had everyone slaughtered at the celebration event. He then went on to level the surrounding cities. Caracalla makes a solid comp for Tywin Lannister then, ruling for a long time with a reputation for cruelty before being killed by one of his own. Soldiers, though not his sons,
0: <laughs> <laughs> got up comparatively light. That's great. Obviously, George has um, brought up the the Black Dinner as a comparison for the Red Wedding before. There's also the Glencoe Massacre, also in uh, in Scottish history, where some clansmen who weren't interested in uh, paying allegiance to William the Third and Mary the Second after the the Jacobite Rising in the 1680s, uh, several of those clansmen were. Uh, were wiped out along with their men. Roughly uh, 30 members of, the, of their clans were, were killed by the, the Scottish government for making things awkward for them. So George has also brought that up as some part of his general mashup he does with historical events. Specifically, he said that whatever I come up with, there's always something worse in history. So as bloody as George can get, he's only, you know, he's only keeping pace with what we've done to each other.
1: I guess we also need to eulogize Rob Stark, the young wolf, the king in the north. His was not the Song of Ice and Fire, no matter how badly we wanted it to be. He followed in Ned Stark's footsteps, and Jon will follow in his, though I assume with a twist. Rob's rise in A Clash of Kings was mythic and meteoric, the boy king who would lose no battles while strategi- strategizing against Tywin Lannister, one of the most hardened generals in Westeros. The reader's distance from Rob allowed that myth to grow, for George to print the legend. While we don't have that distance in the HBO adaptation, I really love Maisie Williams' aria explaining it to Charles Dance's Tywin. They call him the young wolf. They say he rides into battle on the back of a giant dire wolf. They say he can turn into a wolf himself when he wants. They say he can't be killed. The rub, of course, is how that exchange ends. That anyone can be killed. And so she spoke. The Storm of Swords Rob has been an altogether different beast. Not far off page-winning battles in the Westerlands, but in our face, dealing with day-to-day politics of broken betrothals and mutinous allies, of strategic blunders and dead kin. Winterfell has fallen, his brother's dead, his sister's dead or Lannisterized, and now the North is facing a behemoth of Tyrell and Lannister forces upon the Iron Throne. It's been an unpleasant march to the Red Wedding, with only faint glimpses of hope teasing a potential Northern Reconquista. But as as we've said, that hope was just a set of jangling keys to keep us distracted from the <laughs> knives at Rob's back. Through Rob, George gave us a look at a young King Arthur, and maybe more importantly, King Arthur's mother, and more generally, a traditional hero archetype, of the Cambellian sort, sure, but also in a form more ancient than that. In the moral universe of A Song of Ice and Fire... He seemed the most righteous of the five kings, justice and mercy working in concert in ways the other warring kings haven't quite mastered yet. But like with Ned, we see what happens when that bumps into the real material political context of Westeros and a deteriorating one at that. Norms are breaking down. We're well past a legal breakdown. This is a complete abandonment of our obligations to other people. And while George's thumb is on the scales, there is something to this. Even if you are good-hearted and win every battle in front of you, it's still no guarantee you come out on top.
0: It's easy to dismiss Rob as nothing but a long con, the story's most elaborate red herring, the guy who wins it all right up until he loses it all. And definitely George is trying to shake up this image, the young, handsome, kind-hearted warrior king prodigy who looks and sounds like he just stepped down off a stained glass window. It's an idea that's easy to take for granted, and George wants us to make us aware of that and question it. He keeps us at an emotional distance from Rob by not making him a POV, unlike most of his siblings. The only other Starkling not to get their own chapters is Baby Rickon, and the name of his wolf, Shaggy Dog, indicates that Rickon's story really might be a comically extended joke on the reader. because Shaggy Dog stories are the kind of long-winded joke where the, the humor is that it never leads anywhere and kind of peters out. That might be what's going on there. But I think there's more going on with Rob, especially in terms of why he falls. I think a lot of readers have overcorrected when it comes to both Rob and Ned. Things don't work out for them, to put it mildly, so it's easy to reach the conclusion that they were wrong about everything. Not only that their strategies didn't work, but that their worldviews were fatally flawed. Coming back after Feast and Dance changes your perspective. Look what happens in those later books. After Tywin dies, his coalition crumbles, because its value is all caught up in him and no one else. Meanwhile, the stark tully coalition reassembles itself in the shadows, not even needing a figurehead to do so, or at least not yet. That's not to say everything they do is righteous and awesome, just look at Stoneheart hanging Brienne, but that there was a secret strength to the Starks even as they fell. The way they lived mattered more than how they died. Belief in them has persisted even after their deaths. The difference ultimately is love. It might sound glib, but Ned and Rob both knew how to make people love them. And not only does Tywin not know how to do that, he is opposed to the idea of trying in the first place. As he tells Jamie, you cannot eat love, nor buy a horse with it, nor warm your halls on a cold night. That's why you get the Mountain Clans marching for the Ned's girl. That's how you get Wyla Manderly defying the phrase to memorialize Rob as a brave and good king, while Tywin's kids are collapsing or running away, or both. The reason Ned and Rob fell is not that evil will always triumph because good is dumb, (laughs) as they say in Spaceballs. The reason they fell is that their love was weaponized against them. Ned's desire to save the children and also honor Robert's memory. Rob's grief for his brothers, leading to him sleeping with Jane and then refusing to abandon her. So their strength was also their weakness, their great glory, and their great tragedy. Love is our reason for being. It's the only immortality we get. But it also makes us vulnerable, and I don't think you can separate the two. Love is why the Red Wedding hurts, right? You're watching Catelyn's heartbreak, along with her brain. But that doesn't mean it would be better to be heartless like Walder Frey, callously watching his grandson die. The Freys can fill Rob full of arrows. They can cut off his head and put his wolves in its place. Valor Morgulis, after all. But they can't kill love. And it's Rob's love that endears in the form of his will, which might allow Jon Snow to rise in his place as the Freys and Boltons crumble into dust like the Lannisters.
1: Music is at the heart of these two chapters. Music as a backdrop and music as a trigger. In Melding, Form, and Function, these chapters have a musical quality to them. The drums are pounding, 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 a line George will repeat. That in itself gives this chapter a rhythm, a lot like Sobbing Sam taking another step. Uh That phrase, the pounding of drums, will signal each new act within this chapter, coming again after Catelyn lays out the party for the reader, and one more time after the betting right before the Reigns of Castamere kicks in. But even the repetition of pounding, pounding, pounding adds a beat, a consistent P sound. An instrument and then instrument nouns are paired perfectly with melodic verbs. The pipers wailed, the fiddle screeched, the skin scurled a lively tune. It's the day music dies in Westeros. Those drums will eventually give way to lyrics, those of the Reigns of Castamere, just as the fiddlers will trade their instruments for crossbows. The lyrics of rains will organize the latter half of this chapter. A refrain of the very same lyrics will do so in aria eleven. George's imagery is, you know, always great, but that almost obscures the fact that George's mood setting is sensory to the fullest. He engages all five senses. Visually, we can imagine the rain outside of Catelyn's room at the end of the crossroads back in A Game of Thrones, or Tyrion describing the lush vale of Arryn thereafter. In Brand 7, A Clash of Kings, we are thrust first into Summer's Head, where smell and taste dominate, the pine-fresh scent of wood and timber, the blood-fresh stench of the wolf's latest kill. The chapters we're talking about today instead invoke the auditory senses. We hear these chapters as much as we picture the actual things happening on page. It's loud and obnoxious, a clattering dissonance of sounds and song. It's the din of a battlefield retrofitted to a wedding, a line that will blur in the feast tents Arya walks past. The loudness of the drums at the start of Cat 7 is, like Emmett said, akin to the drums of Moria, drums that herald menace and doom. But it's also like an EKG meter measuring our heart rate, or perhaps the vitality of the northern cause through the proceedings, beating loudly at first heavily, like we are all anxious, just trying to get past this goddamn wedding so we can head north and get back to the fight. But after the massacre is done, late in the Arya chapter, it's just a single drum beating, long and spaced out heartbeats for someone about to expire. Instead of growing louder, the beating of the hideous heart grows softer and fades as the chapters end and realization sets in for the reader. I assume this is what Charles Dickens' Telltale Heart is about. I only know about it from Lisa's diorama competition at Springfield Elementary. (laughs) Sadly, there are no Star Wars action figures in this original packing.
0: walter has got him hidden behind his throne. He's got like a little compartment you can open. He's got Chewie in there. He's got everybody. No, I totally agreed about the sensory overload. This is why this chapter is so effective, even more than everything that's happening in it. We're talking about two chapters today, but Catalan 7, on its own, might be George's crowning achievement. In terms of A Storm of Swords, its only rival for me is that first Sam chapter you mentioned, and for a lot of the same reasons. Both of these chapters represent mastery of the form, George using every tool available to create a singular immersive experience. With Sam beyond the wall, and Catalan here at the Twins, George uses physical and psychological intimacy to enhance his horror scenarios. He lingers obsessively on the details of discomfort and exhaustion, showing us how they mess with our POVs' heads until they start to disassociate. That's the formal approach of both chapters, separate from the content. They show us a disintegrating mind from within. They're both chapters about what it feels like to go crazy. The reason they both work so well is that George writes them to make you feel like you're going crazy. One major difference between the chapters, though, is the structure. Sam 1 has that great flashback structure where in the present, Sam is struggling through every forward step while his traumatized brain keeps dragging him back to the horror show on the Fist of the First Men. Cattle 7 is more linear, but no less impressive in terms of how form matches content, as George plays with pacing to a perverse degree. Time seems to slow and stretch as the chapter goes along. Despite the mentions of the rain and the party going on in the other castle, the overall feeling is overwhelmingly claustrophobic. Like the world has shrunk down to this one room, and the people in it. On this reread, the atmosphere of the Red Wedding reminded me, more than anything, of a casino. A casino floor is an example of total aesthetic control. Everything in your sightline is put there for you to see and respond to it instinctively. Equally crucial is what you don't see. You don't see clocks in a casino, you don't see windows, and you don't see the exits. You also don't see everyone watching you, not unless you know how to look. It's a party, it's a good time, just like a wedding. But a casino floor is also a trap, and the Red Wedding cranks up that same hellish atmosphere. Even before the blood begins to flow, this chapter just tastes red, like how John thinks about Melisandre later in the book. She even smells red. The scent reminded him of Micken's Forge, of the way iron smelled when red-hot. The scent was smoke and blood. It's that sickening synesthetic immersion in too much heat and too much wine. Faces slick with sweat in the torchlight, everyone tearing and gulping and laughing like hyenas. It feels like a Bosch painting. Again, it's hell on earth. Like you said, the music is at the heart of it. That nightmarish dirge, shrieking and screeching like souls in torment, only resolving itself when it comes time for the reigns of Castamere. Part of what makes this chapter so impressive is that every detail signifies in both logistical and thematic terms, melding form and function, like you said. On one hand, the reason the musicians are so bad at this is that they're not actually musicians. They're soldiers, with crossbows at the ready. But on the other hand, George is speaking to the heart of his story by framing this chapter musically, because it's the Song of Ice and Fire, after all. While the story will carry on after the Red Wedding, part of it ends here. This is the end of Rob's cause. This is the end of Catelyn's POV. So this is what it sounds like when a story breaks down. It sounds like dissonant music, one song emerging from inside another. George has been playing a trick on us, pretending Rob's story will carry on through Mokalyn back to Winterfell, while he's been setting up the real plot point under the surface. And the music kind of makes that literal.
1: So this episode is fun because we get to be a bit of renaissance men. We get to talk about literature, cinema, history, music. So can I add in a little science while we're here? I love the description of the air being thick and hot, as that leads to rains and storms respectively, though in this case it's the rains of Castamere and a storm of swords. Thunderstorms form when a weather front moves into an area where the air is hot and moist, The front will lift the warm, wet air into the upper parts of the atmosphere, where it will start to cool and condense, drop lower into the atmosphere now that it's heavier, and then warm and rise again. This convection cell will eventually lead to the formation of clouds, and then to rain, and eventually storms. We already have actual rain outside the twins, but the science also supports rain or the storm happening indoors as well, though sadly it's a deluge of crossbow bolts and not actual rain. All that airy thickness, of course, lends itself to sweat, and George next engages the olfactory component, as Catelyn wafts in Ryman Frey and Roose Bolton next to her. One smells sour, and the other sweet, but again, in a Lord of the Rings homage, both men will be foul by chapter's end. The switch to smell and taste also helps transition the chapter from Catelyn describing the horrible music to the laughably terrible food. Things are either absurdly plain peasant fare, or just actively unappetizing like calves' brains, and none of it seems well-prepared at all. This seems like standard fare peevishness from Walder Frey, so Catelyn doesn't have to dwell on it that much. Rob even suspected this would happen in the previous Cap chapter. He said he'd swallow whatever Frey served him. One of the most common criticisms of George's writing, possibly in jest, is his incredibly dense descriptions of clothing and foods. As we try to focus on this podcast, those descriptions often reflect something about the characters, or the material conditions in Westeros, or how class works therefrom. It's valuable in its own right, but it also allows moments where the food is wretched, intentionally so, to also linger. Scenes like this, or the fray Pies in A Dance with Dragons, work because we have become intimate with the food and dining customs of this world. In the way we talk about George paying off a lot of his story and style here at the Red Wedding, I think you could rope in the food descriptions along with that.
0: I think this is one case where the excess is the point. George wants us to drown in these descriptions. He wants us to feel grossed out, ready to puke. Because that's how Catalan feels, and he wants to trap us in her perspective. Once again, he's activating the senses, forcing us to imagine what it's like to smell, Ryman and phrase, wine sweats, and taste the jellied calf's brains. And once again, George is working on both literal and figurative levels at the same time. Literally speaking, the reason Ryman is so drunk and sweaty is that he's about to murder all these people and can't face that shit sober. And the reason the food is so bad is that Walder is the pettiest, cheapest person in the (laughs) history of Westeros, and so he doesn't want to waste good food on walking corpses. But figuratively, that sensory disgust and repulsion flows naturally into the violence. It's this nightmare logic where the bloodletting seems like an extension of the horrible sounds, smells and tastes. It's all of a piece, a grand design.
1: For as annoying as this entire celebration seems, let's appreciate Admiral Tully actually having a fine old time at his wedding, one of the few in this event who does. <laughs> at least for now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Roslyn on the other hand, well, Kat describes her smile as being sewn onto her face, the hallmark of a public performance, which all of this is until the knives come out. But as we discussed in Cat 6, bridal concerns help paper over the red wedding plot. The tears and lack of appetite and false smile can all be attributed to nerves surrounding marriage. Weddings are emotionally vulnerable moments. It's a statement of love and or partnership between two people that is shared with a host of supposedly loved ones. That fact works in narrative to help cover up the pending butchery both to readers and to Catelyn, but also is why it's such a gut punch of a moment to the readers, because the great fear of showing vulnerability is the worry that opening your heart will lead to people stabbing it. Maybe not literally, as happens here. <laughs> Zooming around the party a bit, King Rob does his duty, big or small, in that, in that I mean he dances with all the fray women, from the adults down to the wee ones. The Great John is fucking blasted while Merit Frey tries to go cup to cup with him, and Sir Ryman Frey, well, Sir Ryman Frey just sucks. There's nothing really to say about him, he just sucks. We also get a brief moment with Walda Bolton, Fat Walda as she is known, who Roose Bolton chose as wife because his dowry would be tied to his betrothed's weight. Westerosi patriarchy, man, just just lovely. Meanwhile, Walda feels pity for the quote-unquote pretty one, fair Walda, who is a poor thing because she is still a maiden at age 19. Another instance of how patriarchal norms manifest not just in the men, but also the women. And children, too, presumably, to paraphrase Anakin Skywalker.
0: Yeah, Walda and Roos make for a great contrast with Edmure and Rosalind. Like, Edmure is just deeply, unironically infatuated, whereas Rosalind is clearly faking it. That, that grisly detail of her smile being like it's sewn on. Walda and Roos, they have no pretensions. They're honest about the transactional nature of their relationship. And they're fine with it because it represents a one-up on their rivals, including those within their own alliance. Hence Roose's reminder of the young Frey boys with Ramsay. And this is where we get into the tone mixture that you mentioned earlier. We've been talking about The Red Wedding as a piece of horror writing, as a nightmare, which it is. But until the knives come out, it's also a comedy. Like, think about it. If what Catelyn thinks is going to happen next actually happens, in which Rob goes on to kick the Ironborn out of the north and retake Winterfell, how would they remember this night? Just that really bad, awkward dinner party they couldn't wait to get over with. It would be a funny story to tell. Even at her most depressed, Catelyn can't help but laugh a little bit about how Edmure moaned and whined all the long, slow, wet way from River Run, And now here he is, smiling his head off because it turns out his wife is hot. So many great little gags in this chapter, especially about Great John Umber, this larger-than-life figure who is the life of the party and also kind of a walking paternity suit. <laughs> the embodiment of the North's self-image. I love that Catelyn knows him well enough to realize that asking him to stay sober is like asking him not to breathe. He's like, you know, he's like your husband's best friend. I know you like John, sweetie, but he just, he just gets so <laughs> drunk. That's Catelyn here. She's seen the Great John at a few Winterfell parties, I'm sure. I also love even more, I love the bit where the Great John starts singing and she's like... Actually, yeah, not bad. He's got some he's got some Sinatra soul to that voice. If only he wasn't singing a totally different song than the musicians are playing, which is that's some drunk shit right there. Again, up until it goes bad, the Red Wedding is is just the kind of party you want to leave early because everyone's getting a little too into it.
1: I think at this point we can just make a running list of all the sadly ironic thoughts that come out of Callan's mouth and mine this chapter. Starting here with a wedding is not a battle, and soon to be followed by was there ever a wedding less joyful? And a bit later, and a few more hours, and the worst will be all over. Right before the betting, Catelyn will worry about how many of these men will be dead before the end of the year as well. No wonder our friends at the old Storm of Spoilers podcast had a running award for the Catelyn Stark most ironic statement for the last several seasons of Game of Thrones.
0: A lot of contenders for that prize. <laughs>
1: Catlin also makes note of the implicit threat that Roose Bolton made to Walder Frey about his grandsons, which Emmett mentioned earlier. Catlin just doesn't realize what Roose is really saying is, when you start killing all the Northmen, me and mine best not be caught in the middle. We've talked previously about the dissolution of norms, of how society has been flipped on its head in this and our last couple episodes. Perhaps nothing exemplifies that more than Cat viewing Robb's wars to come as a relief. That battle should be a source of respite, and wedding parties a source of tension, is clearly fucked. Uh (laughs) An inverse way of the thing should be, a flipping of societal expectations. Greywind's absence is noted when Cat pays mind to the ale-drenched dogs in attendance. We do see that Rob did try to ensure Greywind's invitation, wanting to use his plus one on the wolf since his wife could not make it. Greywind's reaction in Cat 6 ends up playing like a sword without a hilt. His ferocity at the gates... Could or maybe should have served as a warning sign that things were rotten in the Towers of Frey, but now it gives Walder Frey ample reason to deny Greywind's attendance because of the accident poor Peter Pimple suffered. Of course, Walder Frey has to salt the wound, hitting us with some irony of his own, referring to his family as quote-unquote sweet innocence, as if they aren't about to murder all their house guests. He even drops a My Roof, My Rules, which should have the reader thinking back to the mutiny at Craster's Keep, which is one of the bigger signposts on the road to the Red Wedding. We zoom out to look at the party once more, which Catelyn describes as a cacophony, between the cheers and jeers, between the band playing one song and the great john singing another. Hell, they can probably hear the bastard feast over at the other castle too, no reason to think it isn't as loud as, and obnoxious as this one. The backdrop of noise makes a stark contrast to Roos Bolton, who I guess is the living embodiment of a stark contrast. <laughs> <laughs> he mutters something so quiet in the midst of the noise that I'm surprised Catelyn even clocks it. This chapter is so driven by its loud noises, I feel like Bolton's muted volume should be another red flag that he's at cross-purposes with what's happening at this, in this chapter.
0: I love how the show handles Roose in this scene. He's the one whose armor Catelyn feels instead of Edwin Frey. Because the show audience knows Roose and the Freys on the screen all kind of blurred together. You know, they all just got those little pointy hats. <laughs> it's hard to necessarily tell them apart. Even better in that show scene is how it's not an accident like it is in the books. Roose seems to, to tempt Catelyn with his eyes. Great performance there. It's, it's like, like he wants her to know. He wants to see that knowledge break her. And that fits Roose in the books as well, even though it unfolds differently. The Red Wedding has many fathers. Walder plays host and is the one most visibly associated with it, while Tywin is the puppet master behind the scenes who distributes the spoils afterward. Somewhere in between is Roose. The Red Wedding isn't his idea, and this isn't his castle, but as we learn in the epilogue, this is still his show, when Merritt thinks about how Lothar Frey worked out the details with Roose Bolton. And while Roose had to work out the details so he could command his own men, I think there was also something more psychological at work. A sadistic pleasure Roos got out of directing Rob's death like a movie. Like I've said before, what makes Roos a great villain is the sense of barely restrained ferocity. This soft-spoken, mild-mannered guy is clearly capable of eating you alive and enjoying every bite. He just doesn't... until right here. The Red Wedding is Roos' creative self-expression, painting in red to reveal the beast he has always kept at bay inside himself. The hellish aesthetic of the Red Wedding, the, the shrieking sounds, the disgusting smells and tastes, all of that is what the inside of Rus's head is like 24-7. Now he shows himself to Rob and Catalan right before ending them.
1: Rob takes Rus's bathroom break as an opportunity to chat with Mom. Really, the last time we have a moment with Rob before all hell breaks loose. A few more hours and this farce is done, Rob says, which Wyman Manderly will echo something similar in Davos 4, A Dance with Dragons. The North remembers, and the Mummer's farce is almost done. That latter plot line, which emerges specifically because of what happens here at the Twins. Rob asks Sir Ryman about Olivar, whom Rob wishes would squire for him again. Did I mention Sir Ryman sucks? Because he sure does. <laughs> uh-huh. He remains drunk and distant from the Starks, and Rob's tone and response signals that he thinks there is more going on, though, like we've said all through these last few weeks, exactly what is going on is what Rob and Catelyn both greatly underestimate. Speaking of hints towards a future Dance with Dragon plot lines, Catelyn mentions that Lady Mage Mormont took her other daughters with her on her mission in the Neck. Alayne Mormont will mention her in the Asha chapters in A Dance with Dragons when both are part of Stannis' march on Winterfell. As Rob leads Stacey Mormont in dance, Catelyn thinks about Rob's ability to inspire, something his father Eddard was known to do as well. It's literally the driving force of the northern plot of A Dance with Dragons, which Emmett described earlier. In our very last Catelyn chapter, George hits us with a little bit of an Eddard Stark rule of three, having Catelyn think of him thrice through this chapter. At the beginning, she thought of their wedding day, here now in relation to Rob, and of course, her last thoughts about Ned loving her hair as Catelyn Stark loses her shit moments before she loses her life. Walder Frey continues his word plays when he calls for the bedding, a sword needs a sheath, doubling as sexual innuendo and violent foreshadowing. Again, in part, what makes The Red Wedding so powerful is the juxtaposition of quote-unquote love and, no quotes necessary, violence. This metaphor just captures that perfectly. The song choice as well, the queen took off her sandal, the king took off his crown, has the same idea, the former clause more romantic, the latter, which can be interpreted as allegedly defiling the king's body. Rosalind must not care for granddad's puns cause she goes white at all of this. Really the first time Catelyn starts seeing through what's happening. Up to this point, Rosalind's tears and fake smiles, while unordinary, could be explained away. But that's becoming harder and harder. As Catelyn notes, any child in House Frey would know these customs better than pretty much any other house in the kingdoms. It was even expected of ladies to perhaps share in the ribaldry, be part of the performance.
0: I think part of what George is doing with the Red Wedding is showing us how violence, or the threat of violence, always lurked under these ritual ceremonies. Even though the hosts, you know, don't usually massacre Mm -hmm. the guests. We've already seen with Robert and Cersei how a combination of marital norms and political power can provide a cover for rape and assault. We'll see a much worse version of that later with Ramsay and Jane. A wedding that is only possible because of how this one turns out. Underneath all the dick jokes flying back and forth, the ritual merriment of the songs, there's Rosalind's terror and tears. On Reread, of course, we know why, but the Great John doesn't know that. He just throws Roslyn over his shoulder like a piece of meat. I don't think he even sees her tears. If he does, he just didn't take it seriously. That's not the drawn equivalence between the phrase and their guests slash victims, but to say that exceptional acts of violence can blind us to subtler forms of control that express themselves as one lonely face in a laughing crowd. It's all the more powerful through Catalan's eyes. Defining herself as a politically active wife and mother has meant confronting the contradictions of that life. We saw that originally in terms of her resentment of Jon Snow, that no matter what she does, she has this walking, talking reminder that she's not in charge of her life and her home as much as she wanted to be. Later, we saw it in terms of her relationship to her family, how she has to babysit Edmure even as he leapfrogs her to take their father's place, how she realized the truth about what Hoster did to Lysa. Now she understands what a trap marriage and childbirth were for Lysa, although Catelyn dies without being able to connect the dots. That little finger took advantage of Lysa in order to deceive Catelyn about who killed John Arryn, dragging the Starks and the Tullys into what was, up until that point, a struggle within the royal family, between Cersei and Robert's brothers. The Red Wedding takes that hidden pain and rubs Catelyn's face in it, along with ours. It makes the suffering impossible to ignore, and there's a hideous catharsis to that. George, I think, here is taking on Sandor's role when Sandor says to Sansa, I'm honest. It's the world. That's awful. That's George here.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Do we need to do some kind of like warning that we're about to get into the palooza? We're
0: tipping over the hill of the roller coaster, folks. No turning right. back.
1: Here we go. For all the loud noises, including another line of the drums pounding, 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 it is a whisper that sets things in motions. Or at least signals a shift to said palooza. Daisy Mormont's entreaties towards Edwin Frey are met by quote-unquote unseemly violence, as Kat puts it, giving way to the exceptional violence that's about to explode on the page. Kat tries to downplay it momentarily, but then everything clicks into place. She feels Edwin's chainmail, she hears Tywin's song, Rosalind's tears, the missing phrase, it all adds up. But too late. Within three sentences from Catelyn's epiphany, Robb Stark has grown some new crossbow bolts. And away we go.
0: Death finds a way. And like I said, I love the bit with Roos on the show, but this with Edwin Frey works on its own terms. I love that it's something so small that sets Catelyn off. It's not Walter saying the red will run. No, it's just Edwin refusing to dance a little too loudly. There's a script here one Catelyn knows well. And this little deviation activates a dread in her she doesn't understand enough to explain, even to herself. It's less a big reveal than a tipping point. Catalin knows something is wrong, but it's both too big and too small to put her finger on. This is supposed to be a joyous occasion, friends who became enemies becoming friends again. The wedding, sealed by sex, both symbolizes and enacts the alliance Rob needs to win the war. This is how you make peace. But as Edwin says, the dance is over, and the real face of how they're going to settle things emerges when she feels that armor under his silken sleeve. And that contrast defines the Red Wedding, a murder plot concealed inside a wedding. It's the equivalent of the shadow moving on the walls of Renly's tent that Catelyn saw, the Herald of Death, coming to tell you that the party is over. And with this revelation for Catelyn, like you said, everything starts falling into place. The pace ramps up as the jaws of the trap close. The Lannister anthem starts playing, and Catelyn finally understands why the good frays aren't here, and why Rosalind was crying. George is playing the audience like a fiddle. His reference point here is less Shakespeare than Alfred Hitchcock in Psycho and Vertigo, a magician showing you exactly how he tricked you in plain sight, even as he does it. It's like how the ideal punchline in comedy is something... Your audience figures out right as you say it, because you've led them right to it step by step. Comedy and horror are different in terms of tone, obviously, but practically identical in terms of structure. And now we're at what you could call the punchline, George's ultimate horror statement, in which all the tension and discomfort and rising dread gave way to something far worse than the reader could have imagined. This is not just an awkward dinner. Walder Frey's not just a petty asshole, and this is not just a temporary stopover on the way to Rob's next inevitable victory. This is the end of the line. Your killers came to you with smiles, like in Goodfellas, pretending to be your friends just long enough for you to relax and give up any means you had of fighting back. The violence is shocking, almost hallucinatory in its effect. For a moment, like you said, you literally can't believe what you're reading, that your eyes must be lying to you. The first arrow sprouts from Rob's side, George writes, as if it hasn't even been shot. It appeared from inside him, like an emissary of fate. Everything happens so fast. With no setup, no transition, it just happens. We don't see the musicians drawing their crossbows. We see them firing. We don't see the phrase at the table drawing daggers. We just see Robin Flint being stabbed. Writing it this way locks us into Catalin's POV. We only see what she sees as her eyes fly around the room, shock setting in from being shot in the back.
1: Exactly. Like you said, Robin Flint is getting Mm stabby-stabbed. Wendell Mannerly dies with the leg of lamb in his hand. The lyrics of The Reigns of Castamere slice up the descriptions of the dying Northmen and Riverlanders as more armed men pour in. It's a strange echo of Sansa 1, A Storm of Swords, where Butterbumps yells the bear and the maiden fair to cover for backdoor politicking. Now Song is being used to call for overt violence. Some make a noble defense, Small John doing whatever he can to protect Rob, but really, part of the problem is, there is no defense for this. And even the hope of relief is taken away in a heartbeat. Cat exclaiming, Northmen, presumably at Bolton men marching in, but they start cutting up Rob's allies as well. Uh, Can I get one last Sir Ryman Frey sucks? um, Because he is the one to kill Daisy Mormont in the end as well.
0: Sir Ryman Frey does indeed suck. It's it's a shame we don't get the sea Stoneheart hanging him. I would have Mm -hmm. enjoyed it. George has said famously that he had to write The Red Wedding last in A Storm of Swords. Even though this isn't the end, we're barely 60% of the way through the book. What makes it so painful, not just shocking, but painful, like you say, difficult to write, difficult to read... I don't think it's the downfall of the Stark cause. Sure, that cause is easier to defend than the Lannister cause or the Greyjoy cause, but I mean, one faction losing out in a civil war is hardly remarkable or new. That their pieces have been removed from the game board is not what makes the Red Wedding so memorable. Part of it is just the the cowardice and betrayal involved. Like you said, there is no defense for this, because Rob and his loyalists voluntarily put up their swords and now Ryman and the rest are putting their swords back on. I'll talk more about this when we get to it, but Tywin's question to Tyrion about oh, what makes it more noble to kill men in battle than dinner, that has a very clear, obvious answer. Because in battle, they have a chance to kill you back. Mm-hmm. That's an ethical line that was also crossed with the Shadow Baby. They're impossible to defend yourself against. When you see Small John fighting with a table or daisy with a wine flagon against armed and armored men... There is a core of unfairness that I think makes this murder, and not war. But coming back to it now, I think the real emotional heart of The Red Wedding, what makes it tragedy and not just a shock tactic, is the generational effect of it. We're not only seeing Rob killed off, we're seeing the deaths of his whole generation. Dacey Mormont, Wendell Manderly, Small John Umber, and Robin Flint, and Reynold Westerling, supposedly, and peace, sons bury their fathers. In war, fathers bury their sons. These are young people in their prime. People who had lives to live still, good memories to create, children, grandchildren to have. We're not only watching them die, we're watching all of that die. Songs ending halfway through the first verse. We'll never get to know who they could have been if they'd grown as old even as Catalan, who wasn't old, let alone beyond that. And George lingers on these deaths. The visceral gut punches of a a crossbow bolt slamming into Wendell Manderly's open mouth as he tries to speak. That axe head Ryman buries into Dacey's stomach, echoed in Talisa's death in the show. The Northmen hacking off Small John's head. One of the most brutal moments in a set piece composed of nothing but brutal moments is when Catalan briefly hopes those Northmen have come to save them. Those shaggy fur cloaks she describes that have meant home and hearth for the Stark POVs. But like you said, those are Bolton men turning on their comrades, and so hope blew out like a candle in a storm. A beautiful turn of phrase that again reaches back to Renly's death that Catelyn witnessed. It was like the gods were getting her ready for this. That's the almost cosmic cruelty that makes the Red Wedding more than just a bunch of people dying in a war that has already seen many bunches of people dying. And that's a huge part of what breaks Catelyn, the mother who dreamed about all her children back at Winterfell, safe and happy. Now all she can do is scream out to the gods for mercy, and receive in return, only silence. She's seeing the children ripped away from her en masse, not only her own children, but the children of everyone she knows, an apocalyptic downfall of not only the present, but any future to believe in. I think about what Merit Frey in the epilogue says when the Brotherhood are about to hang him, and he's trying to persuade them not to, and he finally just says, I have children. And Lem responds, that young wolf never will. The Freys are salting the earth, poisoning every family tree, And leaving the old generation to wither alone. I think of that Theoden quote in the movie adaptation of Two Towers when he talks about how horrible it is for a father to bury their child and what it is, what it means to have these days be his that the young perish and the old wither. That's what Catalan is feeling kind of all at once here.
1: Yeah, and I think that generational loss, you know, this is all presided over by Walder Frey, like the oldest fucking guy in the entire yep. kingdoms and from the previous generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of just high- heightens that sense of this generation being wiped out.
0: That's a good point. It's almost like it's an expression of old age being resentful of youth and mm-hmm. hating them for that. That's, I like that.
1: Putting a knife to Jingle Bell's throat, Catelyn pleads for mercy, pleads for Rob's life, pleads for anything that may salvage this sunken ship. She promises no vengeance, which is Catelyn just throwing whatever shit she can at the wall, but that's just also not how revenge works. It's necessarily (laughs) escalating. There is a forever tit for tat. Great works of fiction like Hamlet or Moby Dick or Metal Gear Solid 5 Mm -hmm. tell us there is no satisfying a lust for revenge. Whether in this life or the next, someone will seek violent retribution for the wrongs done here and now. In fact, that's something we'll talk about later in this episode. A life for a life, Rob for Egan, Jingle Bell Frey, is Kat's Hail Mary. A Hail Mary that Walder Frey just laughs off, dismisses out of hand. It can't be overstated that this is also a huge fissure in the social contract, Walder Frey not valuing the life of his own kin, his own grandson. It's not just heinous violence against others, but heinous disregard for life amongst your own. Again, what do you do with that? The Tully words are family, duty, honor, and all three have collapsed in on themselves in a few short pages, and it's all collapsing in Catelyn's interiority.
0: That's a crucial aspect of the Red Wedding, especially like you say from Catelyn's POV. Again, it's more meaningful than just the good guys are dumb. It's not a lack of intelligence that dooms the Starks, so much as a lack of imagination. Catelyn sincerely did not believe... That someone could be so thoughtlessly cruel about their own family members because she can't imagine why such a person would even care about living at all. She's been desperate to believe that the Game of Thrones is something more than human sacrifice on a mass scale. She's invested in the idea that her society is designed to produce good outcomes, so bad outcomes come from aberrations, that great back and forth between her and Jamie at Riverrun. When Jamie asks her, if there are gods, why is the world so full of pain and injustice? And Catalan's response is just, because of men like you. In that mindset, you use incentives, both carrots and sticks, to guide people's behavior. And the primary incentives have to do with family. Do what we want, and your family will benefit. You'll get marriage alliances, land grants, titles, titles, titles. Don't do what we want, and your family will suffer. We'll take your titles away, we'll take your land away, we'll even take your children as hostages. Like I said about Guest right last time, Catalan can't imagine someone just ripping the guts out of that system in front of you because it would hurt them too. So what do you do when someone doesn't care if you hurt their family? The bitter reality is that you can't really manipulate someone who doesn't want anything that you have to provide. Moreover, Walder is enjoying the slaughter in its own right. As with Roos, it's self-expression. Only for Walder, it's less about sadism itself, I think, and more about his resentful pride finally seeing those who thought they were better than him, brought low. George leans hard on the human sacrifice angle here, writing Walder like he's literally drinking their blood. In the midst of slaughter, the lord of the crossing sat on his carved oaken throne, watching greedily. Catelyn, I think, maybe even more than Tyrion, is the consummate politician of A Song of Ice and Fire. She was brought up by Hoster Tully, the consummate politician of his generation. She was immersed in the art of the deal from a young age. Now here she is staring a no-win scenario in the face, and she just can't accept it. There has to be a trade she can make. There has to be an out. But Walter is right. He would have to be much dumber than he is to believe that Rob would just walk away and leave him alone. They are past the event horizon. There is no honor or humanity left between them. They are predator and
1: prey. Rob's last words are few, which, fair enough, as he's bleeding out <laughs> from several wounds. <laughs> The one that gets most attention is his last utterance of Grey Wind, which will parallel with Jon speaking ghost name when he gets Ides of Marsht. But Jane and Mother, he names in his last breaths as well, the two women of his world. One distant to us, the other very close. He's finally killed by Roose Bolton, unnamed by the rapidly dissociating Catelyn, but his pink pale cloak leaves no doubt. He gives Rob Jamie Lannister's regards. Despite Roose Bolton never speaking above a whisper, his words are heard very clearly from Catelyn's point of view. This line is just pure chaos. It feels like the Joker giving a freshly two-faced Harvey Dent a gun and telling him to introduce some anarchy into this world. Was this some last twist of the knife by Roose to make clear the Lannister Association? Was it just to bemuse himself? Which, to be honest, is something that Jamie Lannister himself would do. <laughs> Surely anyone within listening distance would either be dead or on his side, and he couldn't have possibly expected Catelyn to come back as a corpse, so... Who is it for? Y- yeah,
0: exactly. I, I think Roos just says this as his own private joke. Again, it feels like this is the one moment that Roos the Noose really lets loose. <laughs> I love th- I love that George doesn't explicitly say that it's him. Like, the clues are all there, but it's such a great way of expressing Catalan's breakdown that she literally cannot recognize that the man who was murdering her son in front of her has just been hiding in plain sight this whole time. And even more, I love Rob's final words. Great point about being the, the two women of his world, his wife and his mother. What could be more Freudian than that? Rob lived and died for love, and that's how he goes out, thinking of those he has loved and how he's paid the price for doing so. And so Rob Stark fully becomes the young wolf. Death as a transfer point between life and legend. At least, at last, he's beyond pain. But the same isn't true for
1: Catelyn. No, it isn't. Catelyn then slits Aegon's throat in response, and it's all over at this point. Society has crumbled, worldviews have crumbled, bodies have definitely crumbled, families have crumbled, there's no connection left to anything but death. The bells ring and the drums fade out, the symphonic violence coming to a close. We witness Cat's last moments from a distance, the madness consuming her. Who is around her and what is tearing at her face, she doesn't even know. She just knows that everyone she's loved is dead or lost to her. Her dad, her husband, her kids. You gotta laugh, you gotta cry, you gotta die. Catelyn (laughs) does all three in the very last paragraph of her very last chapter. We'll maybe put an asterisk next to die. (laughs) But yeah, Ned loved her hair. Rip Catelyn Stark. This hurts, man. It's really only the second time a regular point of view has ended, using a little hindsight here regarding Theon. And thanks in part to this podcast, I must say the Catelyn point of view has to be among the two to three best point of views up to this point in the story. It's hard to come up with a eulogy here. Though in a way, her seven A Storm of Swords chapters feels like a eulogy in their own way, a cavalcade of words to announce the death of Catelyn Stark, of her son, and for now... The Northern Rebellion.
0: Here lies Catelyn Stark, at least for now. <laughs> <laughs> and as well written as the whole chapter is, George pulls off something truly special at the end here. A raw plunge into Catelyn's grief with no barriers left between us and the unbearable pain. Rob had broken his word, George writes, but Catelyn kept hers. She sticks to the rules even as they disintegrate all around her. And the rules say now that she kills Egon for Rob. But of course, that's not really why she's doing it. This is Stoneheart's first kill. The beginning of a vengeance crusade that will decorate the local trees with her nooses. And it's very telling that it begins with the most innocent and defenseless fray, At least among the adults. Aegon, who was a victim in his own right, had no idea this was coming, and took no part in it. There is no righteous catharsis to feel in this. This is, you know, nothing to cheer on like we're watching Kill Bill. Not only is Catelyn converting her grief into murderous rage... But she's losing control of her faculties as she does so. Someone takes the knife away, we don't see who. Ten fierce ravens are ripping through Catelyn's flesh suddenly like we're in one of Bran's dreams. But that's not Blood Raven tearing her face away, it's her own fingernails. And she doesn't recognize them as part of herself anymore because her sense of self is falling apart from within. All that's left is the pain. So much of life is about managing pain. Trying to resolve it, make it go away, but also contain and control it until you can, if you ever can. You distract yourself. You convert the pain into something. Use it as fuel. You let it inspire empathy for people in worse pain than you. So many strategies, many of which Catalan herself has used to fill the hole that's been growing inside. And now, at last, she has to face the fact that they are not working. That the world she believed in has broken her. So the pain turns inward, and she tries to annihilate herself. Better that than living in a world without her children. When she prays to Ned about them all being gone, of course, George is reaching for the, the great, heartbreaking line from Macbeth, When Macduff hears that is told children her dead and just says, All my pretty ones, did you say all? The great dramatic irony, of course, is that Rob is actually the first of Catalan's <laughs> children to die. Up until now, they had all survived, and the rest of them might well make it through, depending on Rigon. But Catalin doesn't know that, so all she can do is beg Ned to take the pain away. And yeah, the final purge, the catharsis that empties out your tear ducts of anything left in them, comes when they grab her hair to prepare her throat to be slit. Don't cut my hair. Ned loves my hair. What really makes that hurt is the present tense. Not Ned loved my hair back when he was alive. No, Ned loves my hair, like he still is. That's all she wants. But Ned's dead, and he'll never love her hair again. And now Rob, the king they made together, is gone too. With that, Catelyn's POV is taken away. And when we see her again, the word love has left her thoughts, probably for good.
1: Oh, goody. There's uh, more to cover. <laughs> what have we done to ourselves? Maybe the worst is behind us. Just like Arya thinks at the start of her chapter. (laughs) It's a much shorter one since we already know what's going on. Arya's purpose here and now is twofold. One, much like her role in A Clash of Kings was, she gets to be Arya underfoot, watching what is unfolding on the quote unquote ground, outside of the purview of the richest of the lords in attendance. It's not just Rob's fall, but the fall of his entire army and the feast tents and murders outside are every bit as integral to the plan as what's happening inside the main hall. We discussed last chapter the barricades and Bolton men manning them, not to prevent people from getting in, but to stop people from fleeing out. Though, surely some people on the margins likely survived, like, say, Garrod Tuttle, squire to Lord Forrester? Oh, you don't know them? They are among the cast of Game of Thrones, the Telltale game, Mm -hmm. which starts you off with Garrod partying outside the twins as the massacre begins inside. Actually, thinking about it now, it's cute that this Game of Thrones game starts us with a character named Garrod witnessing an unholy massacre, just like the prologue character of a Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's great. Well done, Telltale. I'm sorry you're out of business. (laughs) The other point to Aria 11, not to put too fine a point on it, is pain, like I relayed at the beginning of the episode and Emmett just repeated. Yes, we need to see the material dissolution of Rob's army, but also, George wants us to hurt. And we, the reader, are in aftershock after Cat 7. Aria 11 acts as the settling in, the realization really hitting us. You can say it takes us in the back of the head. Maybe we think there's a small hope here. A fool's hope, even, that Arya might be able to sneak and do something, save someone, like she was unable to do on the great steps of Baylor. George even allows her an anxious smile at the chapter's open. The castle's not closed, said with a vague optimism like me spying that Wendy's drive through light on at 12.22am on a Thursday night.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a particularly brutal rug pull that George pulls off. He gives Arya what she thinks she wants, an open door, no guards to get past. But she senses at some level that it's wrong. Not only logistically, in that the Bolton Guard lied to them, but also emotionally off. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the Septa Baylor that she feels at some level like it's happening again. It's been so long since Arya got a helping hand from the universe that she can't help but be suspicious about it. And unfortunately, she is right to be suspicious.
1: Yeah, this whole time I'm thinking maybe Arya can do something. Maybe she can drag Catelyn's body away from a certain death, and then... Oh, wait, she actually does kind of do that, (laughs) though it's through Nymeria, the most Mm -hmm. perverse version of that outcome, but that's for another day. And it's not just that we experience that sinking feeling with Arya, but George has to give us one last cliffhanger, one last ambiguity, that axe taking her in the back of the head. I just pictured George smiling to himself like the Grinch after writing it. (laughs) This chapter, though, unlike Cat 7, can be described as an action movie. Sandor Clegane gets to be our Schwarzenegger here, literally yelling, Get down! to Arya as she realizes what the hell is happening. Arya's skill points are more in agility than strength, so she tumbles off his horse with surprisingly graceful gymnastics. Out of the castle gate, soldiers pour out in a river of steel and fire, turning the water analogies from previous chapters into something far more hellish. The auditory component is just as alive in this chapter too, Arya tuning into Greywind's howl, or possibly hearing it through Nymeria's ears, or possibly across the astral plane that these dire wolves seem to inhabit. In more ways than one, Arya is bearing witness to the death of her family, of her pack, another shock to her system which George describes poignantly as a shiver like a knife, sharp with rage and grief. The slaughter that Arya witnesses is a summation of the violence we've witnessed so far in the first act of A Song of Ice and Fire, the swords and soldiers and riders taking us back to the green fork and the whispering wood, the fire arrows and burning men to the Blackwater, even lines like... The dark shapes moved in front of the flames have me grasping at Renly's death within his own tent.
0: Yeah, good call. I think this is where the parallels to the Blackwater especially really become clear. We're jumping back and forth between different POVs, which we also did at the Blackwater. You have all the the fire and water imagery in common. And hey, Sandor's here too, just (laughs) with a different Stark sister at his side this time. The other big difference being that there's no cavalry charge coming to save the day. The soldiers who could possibly rescue Rob and Catalan are being wiped out before they even have a chance to try. And yeah, the sensory overload is still in full effect. Even though we've we've zoomed out from the claustrophobic chamber drama inside to the widescreen destruction going on outside, you still have George lingering on a description like bone-crushing armor-smashing blades. So we, we feel and hear that violence even before it actually happens. As with Catelyn when the arrows started to fly inside, the sheer speed of the change from party to massacre is disorienting. Arya doesn't even see the first feast tent fall. She just sees two where there were three, and she doesn't understand what happened. She has to catch up.
1: The disharmony of violence juxtaposes against the harmony of the music, Arya now hearing the song that Catelyn hears inside the castle. It ties these two chapters together, once again song lyrics interspersed between descriptions of dying men. The line that hits me here is the, only a cat of a different coat. Because yeah, in the muddy, smoky dark, this mass of humanity is almost indistinguishable from each other, especially with half the Northmen turning on the other. Why are we all killing each other? Because my coat has gold and yours has red? Men are men, so how did this all get so confused? That's before you even consider what is coming down from the north to kill all men. Valar Margulis. The Reigns of Castamir.
0: the song is ultimately about pride, which I think is part of what makes those distinctions seem larger than they are. I still have claws, as long and sharp as yours. In this moment, for Tywin and Walder, that song is about Rob. You were prideful, and now we're bringing you low to state our own egos. But for Arya and Sandor... It's pure chaos, mud and blood and screams, nameless anonymous death that seems to exist for its own sake, which is exactly how it feels to the soldiers in those tents.
1: That confusion is writ small to Arya, who knows not whom to fight. Should she try to escape the Hound and find her mom? The Hound is busy getting some of those thousand little cuts that will leave him bleeding out by book's end. But fear cuts deeper than swords, and Arya eventually distracts a third rider from cutting down Sandor, who in turn kills said rider with a freshly found axe. For all the talk about what dogs do to wolves, it's the wolf saving the hound this time around.
0: Arya hates the hound, she tells herself thinking about Micah. He's on her kill list. But is he her enemy in this context? The Freys, on the other hand, were Rob's vassals, as she thinks. They're among the people she was trying to join to get away from the hound, but now they're the ones threatening her. Like you say, it's a microcosm of the whole event. Loyalties are falling apart, the pack is coming apart, and suddenly the man Arya hates, the man who kidnapped and threatened her, is her only friend in the world.
1: Clegane continues his action hero ways, catching his helm one-handed and planting it on his head. Again, I kind of picture this like Arnold reloading his shotgun one-handed during the aqueduct chase in Terminator 2. Where the man sat, only a steel dog remained, snarling at the fires, which gets me out of my seat to chant grand, grand, <laughs> grand, like a good uh uh-huh. Sandor has no clever one-liners, though, only the hard truth. Arya's brother is dead. There's no other way around it. Look, damn you which reeks of something Cereo Pharrell would say, Hmm. though less unkindly. (laughs) Through these Arya chapters, I've mentioned Cereo's quote-unquote true seeing several times for her to really see what is happening in spite of how confused everything might seem to be, whether it's Marin Trant fetching her in the Red Keep or Frey and Bolton soldiers massacring Northmen now. This is a skill that Arya will hone and focus on while serving in the House of Black and White. Arya then sees it for what it is, a butcher's den. In truth, a lion's den, as we'll come to know. The swords singing and storming, giving life to this book and series title. As the massacre slowly comes to a close, George just lets the imagery wash over us. The black sky wept as men died in the mud.
0: George doesn't linger on the outside portion of the Red Wedding because that's not where the character drama is centered, but it still matters. Thousands of men die here. That whole army described in detail a couple in chapters back as they made their way to the twins. They die horribly, smothered and burned alive, or hacked apart by the very people they were just singing and drinking with, their allies, their friends. Again, the raw betrayal of it stings. We'll really see that in Arya's next chapter, when they come upon a survivor of the massacre, a, a Piper soldier who tells them about how he was getting along, making jokes, drinking with this Bolton soldier, and then he killed me. That's what makes this different than a proper battle, and that's what makes the Red Wedding a crime in the eyes of the public. It's a cowardly, bloodthirsty act that really exposes Tywin's after-the-fact lies for what they are. He wasn't simply getting rid of a dangerous enemy with an arrow, as he explains himself to Tyrion. He was breaking every social norm and expectation that allow wars to end, in order to win as conclusively as possible. Eliminating not only his opponent, but an entire faction— making sure that his Bolton and Frey allies won't suffer any backlash or any more than they can manage. It's not only the Starks who lose here, not only the Mormonts and Manderleys and Umbers, but also these thousands of nameless men and their families waiting for them to come home. Now they never will. Like you said, it definitely matters that we see this through Arya's eyes specifically. She's been our eyes on the small folk, and now she's the one who bears witness to a massacre of the common people so horrific, you'd think it would curse the very ground on which it happens. And yet, this isn't what matters most to the people left to pick up the pieces. Only Arya and the reader internalizes that this was about way more than a dozen at dinner.
1: The rains of Castamere finally peters out, well, at least the song. The rain continues unabated, just like the tears weep o'er Arya's face. Her last gasp, her last denial, her last hope is voiced here. We're so close. We have to go get my mother. The hound tries to be somewhat diplomatic, pretending he's giving her a choice to stay or go, hoping her instincts will tell her what he says is true and that they gotta get out of there. The chapter ends, as we all know, Arya perhaps reliving what Micah felt in his last moments, with the hound bearing down on him as he tried to get away.
0: As Stephen Atwell pointed out in his essay on this chapter over at A Race for the Iron Throne, it really wouldn't make sense for Sandor to kill Arya here. Like, what does he get out of that? (laughs) So if you stop and think about it, that's clearly not what he's doing. But the first time through this chapter, you are not going to stop and think about anything. Because the intensity and horror and just the quick pace of it all keeps you locked into Arya's perspective, in which Sandor is just another threat, in a world that keeps revealing itself to her to be made of nothing but threats. Why should she trust a logical system of incentives when that very system is what's burning down around her? Why believe Sandor will keep her alive when Jorn couldn't keep her safe? When the Northmen taking Harrenhal from the Lannisters with her help only made things worse? When the Freys who were supposed to be her friends... Tried to kill her instead. George also fools us by bringing up Micah, reminding us that, yes, Sandor did run down and kill a helpless child before. Maybe he could do it again. Above all, though, George makes Arya's death here plausible because he just killed off and Catelyn before our eyes. Any sense of predictability and trust is gone. Anything is possible in a world gone mad. And there is exhilaration for the reader in that, I think, as well as pain. The knowledge that we're in the hands of a master. That's what makes The Red Wedding linger. It is not just brute force shock. It's a symphony of suffering conducted by someone who knows exactly how to take us apart and leave us sobbing on the floor. It's the sensation that nothing will ever be okay again. It's an open wound, and over 20 years after it was written, the wound of The Red Wedding still hasn't closed. All right, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork. Uh, Catelyn lingers for a bit in the early funnier part of the chapter and how drunk the Great John is uh, getting. Specifically, he's drinking with Merrit Frey, and we will learn in the epilogue to *A Storm of Swords*, which is told from Merrit Frey's POV, that this was not incidental. This was like everything else part of the plan. That the Freys immediately identified the Great John as a source of danger. We gotta get him roaring drunk. That you know, gotta get him too drunk to stand. Lothar says. Uh, Never made exactly clear why they don't want to just kill the Great John. They end up kind of using him as a hostage against his uncles, kind of half works. But I do love the detail that it didn't really work, that even as drunk as the Great John was, he still, like, killed a dude and wounded a bunch of others before they got him in chains. Him and Sandor might get along.
1: Yeah, if I was a member of House Frey and had to play a role in the Red Wedding, in my 20s, I'd be, let me drink with the Great John. I'd love it. (laughs) But now that I'm 30 or 40 years old, like... Give me someone to kill. I do not want the hangover that comes with drinking with the Great John.
0: Can I join the Catapult guys? They seem like (laughs) they have an easy job. Let me go hang out with them. Uh, As we mentioned in the main doc, Roos mentions the young Walders, Big and Little Walder, in passing to not only uh, remind uh, Lord Walder about them, but also to remind the reader. They're going to be coming up again in A Dance with Dragons, hanging out with Ramsay, those two little squires, who didn't take part in the Red Wedding. So I guess they avoid the curse part of it, but (laughs) they do so much other kind of murder and bullying and bigotry, it's hard to imagine their souls will be saved just because of that.
1: Yeah, one of them definitely doesn't make it out, and it is a good reminder because it was these two kids showing up in Reek 1 that really first kind of like clued me in exactly what was happening. I was a little slow on the uptake with that chapter, but when uh, the two Walders showed up, I'm like, okay, I think I know where this is going, and I'm excited.
0: It's a great bit because like like Theon isn't confused enough about his name. Now he has two kids with the same name, and they're confusing (laughs) backwards nicknames to remember. It's a great bit. I love that, that they're the first ones he talks to. Great stuff. All right, moving on to theory and discussion. We've had one Red Wedding, yes, but what about the second Red Wedding? When, when, when do we get our second breakfast?
1: Oh, boy. I mean, I, I am pretty uh, amicable to this uh, take. I do think there will be some kind of second Red Wedding because we do know there will be a wedding in the Westerlands or in the Riverlands, wherever it's going to be. But there's going to be a prime setting for um, all these frays to get re I kind of think about um, the Red Wedding in relation to the Purple Wedding, because, you know, the Purple Wedding is kind of the reader getting what they want. We finally strike back at the Lannisters, but at the same time, it's like uh, it's a little kid like kind of choking to death. And then one of our favorites, Tyrion, gets in trouble for it. So it's not like an unadulterated win. Yes. And that's kind of how I imagine a second Red Wedding go like will kind of satisfy that initial bloodlust. But like I said earlier, revenge has a tendency to just spin out of control. In fact, that's what it does by its very nature. So this is where we talk about innocent phrase dying or people who had no involvement with anything, um, just kind of getting caught in the crosshairs. Uh, who knows, maybe this is you know where a Jane possibly you know dies if she's in attendance for any reason. Um, so I definitely see something like this happening. And it's just going to be one of those things where I don't think it's going to be as sweet as we want it to be. Exactly. I think that's... That's, that's the
0: main point. I think logistically, how this unfolds, it could be any number of ways. We know Stoneheart is hanging phrase. We know she's got a bunch of guerrilla bands camped all over the place that they're lighting watchfires around River Run. This is something Dave and Lannister, Jamie's cousin, tells him. We know that Thomas Sevens, member of the Brotherhood, is now a spy inside Riverrun. He's managed to work his way in, inside the castle. So something's going on there. The Blackfish has also escaped. He could definitely be an asset. Uh, who knows? They haven't – they're not specific in the books if you go back about exactly when and where this wedding is going to take place between Dave and Lannister and unnamed Frey girl number 5,000. That's going to be – You know, who knows? That could, Maybe it's going to happen at Riverrun. Maybe they want it to happen in the West. Maybe the plan is to have it at the Twins. Who knows if all of the phrase are going to be in attendance? As we've said before, I think some of the phrase are definitely going to be turning on each other and so might not be involved. Uh, who knows if Lord Walter's going to meet his end there? So a lot of ways it could go down, but I think you're exactly right in terms of what the, the point of it is, which is going to be giving the audience what we think we want and then kind of rubbing our faces in how awful it is. As we see Innocent phrase die, we see – You know, David and Jenna Lannister are both kind of hard-edged and unapologetic about doing terrible things in the name of their family, but they're also very likable. Those two Lannisters Mm -hmm. we meet in A Feast for Crows, it's not going to be fun to watch them die. And I think part of it will also just be that the Brotherhood had noble ideals for all that Sandor made fun of them for. They really did believe in the sense that... We're defending the people from everyone. And watching them take a side in the war, even if it's very justifiable, understandable, that feels like a, a disillusionment away from their earlier perspective. So I think overall, it is that is going to be something that George is, is dangling before us and taking it away from us, like he does with Theon, like he does with Jamie, like he does with Cersei with The Walk. He kind of makes us realize that so often what we think about is justice often comes down to punishment or an eye for an eye. And I think that will also be something very intense to witness because I assume the POV for this if it happens would be Jamie and or Brienne since they're the ones involved in that so maybe Stoneheart makes them watch or makes them take part or you know you can imagine how it goes from here but that would be devastating for them both because Brienne thought so highly of Catelyn and Jamie will of course be taking part in the further destruction of his own family and cause so I agree it's going gonna, it's gonna to be George makes you want revenge here and then he's going rip, to rip your guts out for asking for it that's going to be a hell of a thing
1: And I can't wait for it either way. Either
0: way, exactly. Couldn't have said it better than that so i think that is going to wrap us up we did it for our 200th episode Uh, i'm so happy to have done this with you sir i mean i look forward to every episode but obviously i really look forward to this one i can't say how much i appreciate being here with you again to do these episodes and how much i appreciate everyone who's listening and supporting us on patreon uh it's just it's an accomplishment to get here but just an, an absolute pleasure so thank you for being here with me and thank you to everyone who listened
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I do want to thank the listeners because you guys have made this podcast as great as it is. Before I was even here, you made it great. Um, I hope you know I'm helping along with that, and you know, thank you very much for welcoming me onto this podcast. Of course. And I gotta say, uh, last summer when we talked about this, is like, do you want to get it? My first thought was. The Red Wedding is yet to come, and it's not that far down the road. Uh, so it's perfect. The timing was perfect. I'm like, let's do this. Let's go. And I've been thinking about this day for about, you know, 11 months now. Uh, so I couldn't be happier to have done it with you. Uh, a job well done, I would say so myself. <laughs>
0: Good for us. It's like that scene in season three of the show when Walter Frey and Bruce Bolton are basically congratulating each other on pulling off the Red Wedding. Yeah. That's, that's what we're doing right here. <laughs> Good for <laughs> we us. Did it. Like, a you um, warden of the North? Normal- off.
1: <laughs> oh man. Uh, one of us can be Tywin, one of us can be Bruce Bolton. I think no matter how bad they are, I'd rather be one of them rather than Walter Frey. <laughs> I agree. I completely agree. Um so again, thanks everyone
0: for listening. Uh as always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast have a choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. If you haven't already, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ASOIaf where our patrons get benefits including early access to our regular episodes and exclusive episodes every month. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast,
1: A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com, and you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering the Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. And
0: my most recent Lord of the Rings episode for all of our $5 and above patrons is now out, uh, covering book six, chapter five, The Steward and the King. You can find that on patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. My next Star Wars episode for patrons, covering uh, my second episode on the original movie, finally introducing Luke Skywalker. That's going to be out for patrons in a couple weeks next time on the main cast we're not going to be jumping ahead right away into the next chapter instead we're taking a little bit of a breath a little bit of a palate cleanser right after the red wedding instead we're going to be doing an episode looking back at season three of game of thrones everything we like everything we don't thought it was perfect timing since we basically covered most if not all of the content that is in that season up until this point in storm of swords so that's going to be out for everyone in a couple weeks and then a couple weeks after that we'll be covering a storm of swords Tyrion six in which Tyrion steps away from his loveless marriage long enough to learn about how bad a wedding can really get
1: yeah and we still have at least one more no we have two more weddings still left in a storm of swords uh, the you know Baelish and L- Lysa oh, right. One isn't as I eventful about that one. <laughs> but it's it also pretty tragic in its felicit, own way. <laughs>
0: exactly that bit where everyone can just hear them fucking <laughs> is one of the the funniest and saddest bits in the whole story I think uh, yeah I forgot about that one so many weddings so many wedding bells ahead happier only by comparison uh, to this one so uh, thank you again for listening everyone we will see you for our next episode with season three of Game of Thrones. And then after that, next time in The Song of Ice and Fire, we will see you for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 6.